Welcome to the Mayo Clinic Cardiovascular Continuing Medical Education Podcast. Join us each week to discuss the most pressing topics in cardiology and gain valuable insights that can be directly applied to your practice. Hello, I'm Dr. Steve Kopetsky, preventive cardiologist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Today I'll be speaking with a friend and colleague, Professor of Medicine, Dr. Rob McBain. Rob, welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Steve. Rob is a past chair of our vascular department here, or division, and uh, currently one of our experts on vascular disease that we go to frequently. So we'll be talking today about PAD, so peripheral arterial disease. So Rob, what is PAD? Does that have a specific definition? Yeah, that's a really good question, Steve. And so when we're thinking about uh, peripheral artery disease, what we're really talking about is lower extremity arterial occlusive disease. When one thinks of peripheral artery disease, you could imagine that that's all vessels across the body uh, apart from uh, the coronary circulation. But in, in our language, really PAD is referring to lower extremity arterial occlusive disease. And for the vast majority of cases, that's an atherosclerotic disease. And what's really important to remember is that uh, there are many, many patients who have PAD who don't have symptoms. So PAD is the disease. Uh, the symptom is intermittent claudication or pain in the legs with, uh, with walking. And I think which is really fun when thinking about patients who have intermittent claudication who might not fit into the atherosclerotic category is to try to discern some of the unique differential diagnosis for patients who have that, have that history or have that physical finding. That's where medicine becomes really fun. But PAD is the disease. Atherosclerosis is by far the underlying mechanism, and intermittent claudication is the symptom. So nowhere in there did you mention any uh, imaging test, any diagnostic test. It's really just a historical basis. Is that? Yeah. So, so um, when thinking about populations of patients who have PAD, uh, the definition largely is stemmed around the around the evaluation of the ankle brachial index. And so when thinking, again, about PAD being the disease, uh, uh, when thinking about symptomatic PAD, intermittent claudication, that would only be about half of patients who have PAD. The other half would be completely asymptomatic. And so you might say, well, how would you find these individuals? Well, you would take a good, uh, do a history, of course, take a good physical examination. And then you would localize or, or d define PAD by doing an ankle brachial index. And so for you and I, uh, ankle brachial index of one uh, would be normal. And typically defined uh, patients with PAD would have an ankle brachial index of less than one or less than 0.9 in many epidemiology studies. And when do we need to do more than the ABI? When do we need to do a toe brachial index? So toe brachial index is an interesting uh, measure. And that's, uh, again, if we go back to ankle brachial index, what is that? That is a comparison of the pressure in the pedal arteries, the dorsalis pedis and the posterior tibial artery, to the brachial blood pressure. Mm -hmm. And the way you do that is by using a sphygmomanometer cuff around the ankle. You use a Doppler signal. You localize the artery and then, and then blow up the uh, sphygmomanometer cuff until you no longer have that arterial signal. You lower the cuff until you can hear the signal again, and that's the systolic pressure for the tibial vessels. And then you take the higher of the two tibial vessels, so dorsalis pedis posterior tibial, you take the higher of those two, and then you divide it by 
the higher of the two brachial blood pressures in the upper extremity, and get, that gives you the ankle brachial index. There's a thing that's been popularized in recent years called the toe brachial index, and that's the very similar measure where you take the pressures in the toe and the divide that uh, by the pressures in the, in the brachial uh, system and, and come up with an index for the toe brachial index. And that's typically used for patients who may have non-compressible vessels. Uh, this would be patients with diabetes who you do the ankle brachial index and you don't get a meaningful result because of medial calcification of the artery. You aren't able to compress that vessel. So again, diabetes or end-stage renal disease would be classic indications there. And for those individuals, you still need a measure. And so you would do a toe brachial index for those individuals, and that can be very useful in combination to with the Doppler signal. So we don't think often about the Doppler signal, but we have. But the Doppler signal has a lot of really important information in it as well. A normal Doppler signal for you and I should be triphasic, meaning a good forward signal, a good reverse signal, and then as the as the vessel has compliance, that echo signal that would be uh, the third or even fourth signal for some individuals. For diabetic patients who you can't assess their ankle brachial index because of the vascular calcification, the Doppler signal is super useful. So if you're finding a monophasic Doppler signal, that's very abnormal, and that can be very predictive of PAD. But then to define the severity, the toe brachial index in those situations can be quite useful as okay. well. What if you hear a brewery? Mm-hmm. I mean, in the femoral, I mean, that usually a lot of people will say that is diagnostic of peripheral arterial disease. Do you do more than that? Do you need to quantify it? Do you need to image it? What do you do? So that's it, it, a really good question. And uh, uh, if you find a brewery over the iliac arteries or the femoral arteries with your careful cardiovascular exam, it can suggest a stenosis in those locations. And if your patient is 70, of course, it's probably going to be PAD. But what if your patient is 20? That raises a whole other list of differential diagnoses. And for those individuals, further evaluation imaging might be quite useful. Uh, You might identify somebody with fibromuscular dysplasia, for example, Mm -hmm. or a young individual who has other symptoms. Maybe you'll find an arteritis of some sort. If you find a brewery on the classic patient, a smoker in their 70s, it's helpful to, again, do a good history and physical examination. And then an ankle brachial index can be quite telling. And that'll tell you not only where the disease is because of your careful Doppler assessment, but it'll tell you how severe it is. And so for our audience, I want you to remember three numbers. 0.5 is anything less than 0.5 would be severe for an ankle brachial index. Normal should be 1 to 1.4. And anything above 1.4, you really have to think about uh, this patient having non-compressible vessels as we've just talked about. But for the vast majority, if they're somewhere in the neighborhood of 1, say, to 0.5, 0.6, something like that, and they've got symptoms but no critical limb ischemia, you probably don't need any additional imaging. You've made the diagnosis of PAD, you've uncovered the risk factors by a good history, and your focus at that point will really be about taking care of the patient's cardiovascular risk and starting them on a walking program. You probably don't need, uh, you probably don't need further in, uh, imaging studies. We would do imaging studies such as CT angiography. That's a great imaging study for patients who were thinking about doing an intervention. The CT angiogram will tell you where the disease is. 
and it will help you to map out your strategy for intervention. So that can be quite useful, but not needed for everybody. So that was a great explanation. Thank you. So the risk factors, are they pretty much the same as for coronary disease? Diabetes, so, you mentioned, smoking, yeah, lipids. We, we think of the big four. Uh, you've mentioned them, in, including hypertension. We think of the big four for our patients with peripheral arterial occlusive disease. By far, the most common and most important risk factor for these patients is smoking. And uh, you'll take a history, and they may not be actively smoking at the time that you see them in your clinic, but they will have had a history of smoking. And this is really important. As you're taking your history and doing your physical examination, you might find a patient who has classic claudication and diminished pedal pulses, but they don't have a history of smoking. And as you're doing your careful physical examination for that particular individual who may have diabetes mellitus, you'll find patients who have really good femoral pulses and maybe even normal popliteal pulses, for some reason, patients with diabetes mellitus have infrapopliteal arterial occlusive disease. So normal femoral, normal popliteal maybe, and then uh, non-palpable pulses in their pedal vessels. And that will help you to distinguish uh, underlying risk factors. But for the vast majority of our patients, what we're talking about is a really impressive history of tobacco exposure. We know that there's some ethnic differences in PAD. Blacks, African-Americans, a little higher incidence than Hispanics, non-Hispanic whites. Uh, is that a risk factor issue or a genetic issue, or do we know? I think it's more than just risk factors. And I think that it's probably more than just access to uh, health care as well. I think there, there clearly is a genetic component to racial differences across our very growing, diverse uh, population in the United States. It's really a great question, and, and how much does genetics play a role in peripheral arterial disease location and severity? Really a fascinating question, Steve. For example, uh, why uh, does a patient with all the traditional risk factors find themselves in my clinic versus your clinic, meaning, meaning they present with maybe stable angina and they find their way to you? versus limiting claudication and they find their way to me. Mm -hmm. And why, uh, why the difference in disease presentation is really a fascinating one. Honestly, I don't, I don't know a, a good answer to that, but um, you know, many patients with PAD, for example, will have uh, coronary disease but have no symptoms mm -hmm. of angina. What about lipoprotein A? Is it as prominent in peripheral disease as it is in coronary disease? Yeah, not only as prominent, but, but very predictive of uh, worse uh, peripheral arterial occlusive disease as well. There's been mm -hmm. some good epidemiologic studies that show that uh, LP little a is, a is an important risk factor. Uh, so our that patients, we, be, we need to check it. We like need to check CAD. it, and we need to be monitoring it. Okay. And uh, this gets, I think, to a, a really important point of the novel atherosclerotic risk factors, so, you know, a CRP, maybe a high fibrinogen, maybe variations in APO uh, lipoproteins. But for the vast majority of patients, they come in and they they smell of smoke and you're like, mm -hmm. uh, you're smoking, right? And yeah, of course, I've had half a pack already this morning. And uh, so uh, the search for novelty uh, there for risk factors is not perhaps quite as important. But but we have plenty of really young patients who present with quite horrific disease in the context of tobacco. And it raises the question, what else is going on for that individual? 
Now, we know in coronary disease that lifestyle is incredibly important to lower their risk. Is the same been shown with PAD uh, beyond smoking? Yeah, so uh, absolutely. We Our patients with PAD, we, we have to be thinking broader than just smoking cessation, though, quite frankly, that is a massive hurdle for our patients. So if they're smoking a pack or two a day, which is not uncommon, three or four packs a day, not uncommon, they're clearly not attending to other risk factors such as diet or regular exercise. They're not exercising because they can't, because of their uh, limb limitation. But the whole package is important. I tell my patients, uh, I tell them I have three good drugs for you. One, well, beyond the traditional risk factor modification, one, you need to get daily exercise. Two, you need to eat a very colorful plate. You know, gravy and potatoes and uh, beef are not very colorful, but if you add lettuce and, and cucumbers and, you know, all kinds of uh, fresh fruits and vegetables, that mm -hmm. plate becomes mm -hmm. really colorful, and that's really important. So we talk about the exercise. We talk about diet. We talk about the addition of tree nuts to their diet, mm -hmm. and the American Heart Association, American College, are really, are really yeah. strong on that, right? Yeah. And then I also talk to them about the importance of, of a good sleep hygiene. And I think obstructive sleep apnea undiagnosed is big in our population. Uh, many of our patients are overweight and obstructive sleep apnea is big. Uh, we need to be thinking beyond just the big four and, and sleep apnea treatment are Certainly. really important. Certainly. And don't forget stress, which everyone the last everyone, couple of years absolutely. has Absolutely. It's an uh, unspoken uh, pandemic uh, yeah. on top of the pandemic. Yeah. The, now, we talked some about the risk factor and lifestyle. What about, uh, you know, is it aspirin, is it clopidogrel, solostazole? When do we use those? So antiplatelet therapy, in addition to the other guideline-mediated, uh, guideline-directed risk factor modification is super important. And aspirin is cheap. Aspirin uh, has been studied extensively in patients with PAD. And if patients come in with symptomatic PAD, adding aspirin as an antiplatelet agent uh, makes reasonable sense. However, if you have a patient who uh, has pretty impressive PAD, I think that adding clopidogrel, not as a dual antiplatelet, but as monotherapy for antiplatelet, makes great sense. You, have, you know, I've talked extensively about the Capri trial, and it was the PAD population inside of the Capri trial, those individuals who had symptomatic PAD, which really drove the results of Capri. And so I think uh, adding clopidogrel as monotherapy is, uh, really makes a lot of sense in this patient population. You mentioned solastazole, and uh, solastazole is a phosphodiesterase inhibitor. Its, uh, its target is to improve claudication in patients with peripheral artery disease. It adds about 100 meters to a patient's maximal walking distance, and about half of patients who are prescribed solastazole will have that improvement. The unfortunate piece is that 25% of patients who are prescribed solastazole will not have any improvement in their walking distance, and another 25% will develop uh, diarrhea that won't let them continue medication. So I must admit that while solastazole is the only medication to improve claudication distance for patients with PAD, we don't use it with any great a zeal in our clinical practice. For the motivated patient, I, I, there's perhaps some utility. Big caveat is that you cannot use celestazole in patients who have heart failure. It's an absolute contraindication. 
reduced ejection fraction Either. or preserved. Yep, uh, clinical heart failure, I would not use celastazole as, uh, as an adverse reaction of uh, increased mortality in that population. Mm -hmm. Makes that a contraindication. So uh, sure. that's something we need to be aware of. Very good point. Now, you mentioned walking. Do you have a favorite walking regimen or Canadian or what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do. Yeah, so the Canadian walking program, uh, one might argue, why don't we come up with an American walking program? But the Canadian walking program is one that we would strongly endorse. It has a lot of data behind it. And, and what is uh, it, simply put? So simply put, the Canadian walking program is that you instruct your patient to go out walking, have a wristwatch, and to walk till they get discomfort in their legs, and then to push it a bit. And uh, once they've uh, got to their maximum walking distance, you have them stop and rest. And while they're resting, they stop their clock. And so uh, then when they start walking again, they turn on the clock and, uh, and let it uh, continue to click. We want patients to walk for 30 to 40 minutes. Mm -hmm. uh, and the goal is for them to walk 30 to 40 minutes without stopping. Mm -hmm. And the data, which is quite strong, shows that uh, the Canadian walking program, if pursued diligently, can improve walking distances by 200 to 400%. Wow. And you might say, well, is that a home run. The recent ERACE trial showed that uh, walking distances improved from uh, 300 meters to 1,200 meters. And you might say 1,200 meters, that's not a home run. For us who, maybe for our patients who want to go on a three or four mile hike, that's not a home run. Mm -hmm. But remember, uh, PAD is really a disease of older individuals. And that improvement of uh, 200, 300 meters to 1,200 meters can make the major difference of continued independent living for that individual. So it is a really meaningful improvement. The next question you might ask, everybody asks, is, well, well a walking program, that's painful. Patients coming to you because they can't walk. Mm -hmm. And here you are prescribing mm -hmm. walking. Yeah, right. It almost seems cruel. But the, again, the data supports that, and, and uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful intervention. You might say, well, can't we just stent them? Isn't that a better choice? That's actually been studied in the CLEVER trial. Patients were randomized to either stenting of iliac disease or Canadian walking program. And in fact, they had improved walking distances. The, the walkers uh, improved their walking distance twofold greater than the stented patients. Wow, what a great message. I mean, twofold. Yeah. And then you might say, okay, that's fun, but how about adding walking to stenting? Let's use them both. Mm -hmm. And that's the ERACE trial. And the ERACE trial showed that, yes, stenting plus walking is better than walking alone. But in fact, the walkers got a 1,000 meters improvement. So the walkers who were also stented got maybe a 1,200 meter improvement. But the, the walking alone increased by 1,000 so meters. So 80% of it is, is the is, walking. Is the yeah. walking, yeah. not the stenting. It's more than just plumbing, Steve. And I think that this is a really important message sure. for our patients and our colleagues. It's not just a plumbing issue. There's a muscle metabolism issue. Mm -hmm. And sure. that's been looked at and that's been studied. And sure. it turns out that mitochondrial DNA in patients who have PAD and intermittent claudication is abnormal. And uh, if you can get them to walk, you can improve the mitochondrial mm -hmm. metabolism of 
functioning muscle. So that's a really important message for that our people. That is such a great point. You know, I tell patients almost every day, your muscle does not know the year it was born. You tell it to walk or tell it to run, yeah. it will do the best it can. Yeah. That's what yeah. it's there for. Yeah, absolutely. So, Rob, these are great messages. We, we really appreciate you coming on today. So PAD is a specific disease. We can diagnose it, suspect it with history. Half of it is asymptomatic, as you pointed out, almost like coronary disease. The risk factors are pretty much the same, but smoking predominates. Treatment centers around risk factor reduction, physical activity, do more if you need with medical therapy and certainly a stenting, but walking is very important. Any final messages? Yeah, the, the, the really important final message that, we, that I'm that my fault I should have gotten to earlier is that PAD is grossly underdiagnosed in our society, and we have to do better at making the diagnosis and implementing the guideline-directed therapies because half of individuals in our societies with PAD aren't getting the treatment that they need, the prevention that they need. The worst scenario is that a patient lives with their PAD only to find themselves in the emergency room with the acute onset of critical limb ischemia. Because if that happens, first of all, their survival is greatly impaired. They have worse survival than many cancers. Secondly, their limb is in jeopardy. And they're in jeopardy of losing, of having a major amputation of that limb. So we as providers need to do a much better job to identify these patients early, get them on the appropriate guideline-directed therapies and prevent that bad outcome of critical limb ischemia. And oh, by the way, relative to patients with coronary disease, patients with peripheral arterial disease have a horrible survival. Uh, they have a 30% five-year mortality rate. That's way higher than coronary patients. So we have to identify these patients. We have to help them to live longer. We have to help them to be more functional. And we have to help them to maintain their limbs. Mm -hmm. So that, uh, as a friend of mine would say on the vascular medicine service in the hospital, we have X number of patients. We want the limb count to be 2X. <laughs> we don't want any less than two legs. We want every vascular patient to have two legs. And uh, and that's uh, that's a goal for us oh, and for great. our communities. It's a great message and a great passionate appeal. And uh, it's a great message to bring home. So hope you've enjoyed this session today with Dr. Rob McBain, Professor of Medicine, Vascular Medicine at Mayo Clinic. I know I've learned a lot. I hope you have too. Thank you for joining us. Good day. Thank you for joining us today. Feel free to share your thoughts and suggestions about the podcast by emailing cvselfstudy at mayo.edu. Be sure to subscribe to the Mayo Clinic Cardiovascular CME podcast on your favorite platform and tune in each week to explore today's most pressing cardiology topics with your colleagues at Mayo Clinic. This has been a Mayo Clinic podcast.